Well, God has indeed blessed us with uh, quality servants of God and our intern pastors. I don't know how this has happened, but by God's sovereign grace, He has graced us with three godly men who are laboring hard for the work of the ministry to present every one of you mature in Christ. That is the heart of the elders, that is the heart of our church, to disciple everyone. We hope that everyone will learn these fundamental doctrinal truths from FOF1. And then before they jump into evangelism, before they jump into ministry, they would consider FOF2 to shore up their lives so that they might have a heart of repentance. That they might be pure in their lives. That their homes might be in order, finances might be in order. That they are men and women of hospitality and generosity and grace and wisdom. And so that when we go out and be trained as evangelists and go out into all the world to share the gospel, that we will do as uh, fully equipped men and women of God. And ultimately, we're actually planning to establish a Cornerstone Bible Institute, a mini-seminary, if you will, where we'll give seminary education to all the members of the church so that you will be able to minister with full knowledge of the Scriptures equipped in every way. God has blessed us with uh, these three intern pastors and, and Bob and I, and all the flock shepherds, and because of the multiple uh, men of our church, we're able to do all these things. Well, yesterday, Pastor Jason uh, organized a single men's breakfast, uh, first one ever in the life of our church, and um, it was the first time I've ever had the opportunity to speak to single men, so I was very excited. I think I was given about 30 minutes to speak, and I went about an hour and a half. didn't realize that until it was over. Um, there was so much I wanted to share with the single men of our church, and the heart of the message was First Timothy chapter six. The man of God runs away. The man of God pursues. Man of God takes hold of. Man of God keeps uh, God's command. Also, though, before that, I had to share. Before you can be a man of God, you have to be a man first, right? That's a requirement to be a man of God. You have to be a man instead of a boy. And I highlighted four differences between a man and a boy. And that was very, uh, I think a rebuking time for all of us, myself included. But before I could get to that, there was, <laughs> I wanted to share about what was really in the heart of all these men, which is the issue of dating and courtship. And so I, I laid on to them six just counsels, wisdoms, insights, encouragements about dating and, and courtship. Well, as soon as I was done, one brother stands up and starts to walk out the door, right? Eugene, by the way, <laughs> right? And I'm thinking, go get him, Tiger. You, know? <laughs> you go get her, champ. You know, he's walking out that door with purpose, ready to just, you know, t- apply these truths uh, into his life. I had to joke, he had to go to work. That's why he was leaving. But you never know what's in the heart of a man. So if Eugene comes, comes to you today to talk to you, watch out. Because... <laughs> <laughs> He's got wisdom from the scriptures. Well, great time with the single men of our church. Um, you know, really encouraged by our men. Uh, you know, young men today are racing their lives on video games and movies, entertainment. I mean, it's so frustrating to go and meet just um, young men of our generation, of our society. And yet, to see young men of our church pursuing Christ pursuing the things of God, being passionate for the Lord, it is indeed a sight to behold. I ask you, if you remember this week, to pray for our men, to pray for our single men, ask God to give them much grace. 
Well, let's go to John chapter 16. Actually, starting from verse 23 this morning, as we attempt to plumb the depths of Scripture here in this passage, I want you to consider this number. I want you to consider the number nine, because we only have nine sentences left uh, before we close our Lord's last discourse with His disciples. A few more sentences, about five more sentences worth that are left before Christ turns His attention away from His disciples and begins His high priestly prayer in John 17. John 17 is the Mount Everest of, of theology in the Gospel of John, if not the whole New Testament. It really is. It is the second person of the Trinity uh, calling out to God the Father and praying and, and describing His glory, the Father's glory, and how the Holy Spirit will reveal all of that to the whole world and to His people. That will be a major undertaking that we'll go through after I return from Czech. In August, I've already begun to compile many books, resources, and articles to tackle John 17. And I know that study will be a life-changing study together. Thomas Watson did, I think, 110 sermons on John 17 alone. I don't think I'll reach three digits, right? Maybe a dozen, maybe 20 sermons in John 17, but who knows how the Holy Spirit will lead us in, in that study. If I, if I go three digits, um, you know, pray for me that I don't, but if I do, uh, it'll be a monumental study. Well, for now, nine sentences are all that is left. That is all He has to say to them. These are His final words. And our Lord understands the the sorrow that is in the heart of the disciples, starting from John 14, ever since He told them that He is leaving them, that He is departing. And Peter said, Lord, why can't we follow You now? And Christ said, You can. Where I go, You cannot follow. From that moment on, their hearts were full of sorrow. There was a storm going on in each of these men's hearts. They are full of grief, full of torment, full of agony, because the Lord whom they loved would be departing from them and they will be separated from Jesus Christ. So starting from chapter 14 all the way until now, Christ, through His instructions, His aim, His desire is to encourage them to strengthen their hearts. Picture the scene. Our Lord is tenderly looking at these men, seeking to encourage them, and yet the apostles were largely unable to fully comprehend and fully receive the grace that Christ intended through His words. He so wanted to help them, so wanted to strengthen them, but because their minds were dull, because their hearts were centered on man and earthly things, they could not receive Christ's help. The limitation was not because of Christ's ability. It was not because of lack of time. The limitation was because of the dullness of the disciples, their minds. And it's the same way with us. The Holy Spirit so wants to speak to each and every one of you this morning. The Holy Spirit has such truths to, to encourage you, to strengthen you, 
to expand your horizons and transform your heart. But it's not that the Holy Spirit is, un- is unwilling. It is not that the Word of God is powerless and weak. It is not because Jesus Christ is not alive. It is because your minds, and my mind is dull this morning. We are distracted. We are centered on earthly things. Our hearts are shallow. Our minds are wandering. That is the reason for the limitations that are presented to us this morning. Also, how so we want to go to John 16 and tell the disciples to wake up, to be alert, to listen to Christ. For if they would so do, the, do this, that they would not go to the pain of deserting Christ, of denying the Lord, and having bad testimonies before the world. Well, the same thing can be said of us. How the Holy Spirit desires that we would be awake, that we would be alert the truths that are found in this passage. A brief review from the previous passage, verse 20 through 22. Christ said to them in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say say to you, emphasizing the veracity, the truthfulness of His words, you will weep, you will lament, but the world will rejoice, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Christ uses two words to describe their sorrow. They will absolutely weep. That's loud weeping, loud cries. Lament, throneo, means inward sorrow, inward grief. They will not just be crying outwardly with their hearts unmoved. No, their outward expression of pain and sorrow will be a reality of what's going on in their hearts. They will cry out because... They'll be filled with grief in their hearts. Luke 22.45 tells us that one of the reasons that the disciples kept on falling asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane was because of sorrow. They were crying so much. They were, their hearts were so full of ache and pain and sorrow. You know how sometimes you've gone through pain, you've gone through times of agony, and how wearisome that is? How physically taxing that is? Well, disciples, they've been sorrowful for so long that they could not, even though they desired to pray with the Lord, they could not continue to pray. And out of sorrow, out of weariness, they fell asleep. Christ predicted that, that they would go through darkness. And what is worse, He predicted, and it came to pass, that the world will rejoice. At the very time that they are weeping, the world will laugh. The world will rejoice. They'll be weeping over the cross and the world, the evil system of darkness that is set against Christ, set against God. They will be happy. They will rejoice. And then he continues, but that's not the end. That is not the conclusion of the matter. You will be sorrowful, full of sorrow, but your sorrow will turn into joy and we looked at that several weeks ago. This sorrowful event, the death of our Lord. Christ won't replace it with something else. From the actual event, we will receive joy. Isn't that amazing? The source of our grief, which is the cross, will become the source of our greatest joy. And that's what happened, right? On Calvary, 
when Mary and Mary Magdalene and John stood there and the disciples later on heard about their, their Messiah, Christ, being hung on the cross. Remember, wrote to Emmaus, their hearts were dejected. When they thought about the cross, they were despondent. And yet, after the resurrection, every time they thought of the cross, it brought them joy. Unbelievers wonder, why do you guys, why is your sign the cross? Why do you boast in the cross? Why do you glory in Calvary? Isn't that humiliating? Isn't that embarrassing? Why do you follow a man who was humiliated to die on the cross? Because for us, yes, it is bittersweet. It is bitter because Christ had to endure such pain and suffering due to our sins. But we love the cross because that is the source of our joy. Because that is where our sins were crucified. That is why, that is where our flesh was dealt a death blow. That is where Christ was victorious over sin and death. He conquered it for us. And the cross is the hope of our salvation. Therefore, we glory in the cross. And so what Christ predicted here came to pass. Your sorrow will turn into joy. And then Christ gave us a perfect analogy in verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. And all the moms here, and the two moms-to-be, you understand, you know, especially Sue and Donna, as they're getting ready to give birth, they're looking forward to that time. But I am certain, having talked to my wife, there is a fair amount of fear and trepidation concerning labor and delivery because they know no amount of Epidural, no amount of medication and, you know, the, uh, the, the hospital work can relieve them completely of pain. It's not a pain-free process. No way. And so they understand there is amount of pain and sorrow involved in giving birth. So Christ says she has sorrow because, when, because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, after the baby is born, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Right? A mom goes through much pain to deliver her child, but after the child is born, you know, the father, we vicariously experience it. You know, we, I, mean, I, was, I was ecstatic at the birth of Elizabeth and Emma, but nothing compared to the joy of my wife. I mean, she carried, the, you know, Elizabeth for nine months. Right? I mean, it was growing in her womb. And the, the pain and agony that she w- went through to bring that child to life. And when, when she held Elizabeth and Emma in her hands, I mean, just abounding joy. Doesn't call it the pain, the anguish she might a little bit, but, you know, the joy outweighs the pain such that she's overflowing with joy. Christ says, that is what we will experience as Christians. That is what they will experience. That joy of the resurrection is far greater than any pain of the cross. Not only that, verse 22, um, he promises this joy that our hearts, their hearts and our hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Right? It's a cruel thing. It's a joyous thing to take kids to Disneyland, but that cruel hour comes when you have to go home. Right? A Disneyland closes. Right? And it's cruel when you take your kids to Disneyland for only like a few hours, like why even take them there, right? Because it's so short-lived. And so if Christ gave us joy and took it away a few hours later, 
It'll be cruel. But that's not the case. Christ says, I will give you this joy and no one will take it from you. Not only is it a promise of joy, but it is a permanent joy that abides in believers forever. Forever. It rightfully belongs to us and it will be ours forevermore. Now, starting in verse 23, our Lord is not changing the subject. He's expanding on the theme of joy. He's continuing on this topic of joy over sorrow for believers of Christ. Our Lord continues to teach them and thus teaches us how to possess this joy and how to complete it. How to have fullness of joy. That believers are not to stop at the cross and to think that we are to live our lives always looking back. Wow, Calvary. Wow, Matthew 26. Oh, John 19. Oh, 2,000 years ago. Oh, how I wish I could visit Jerusalem to see the site where Christ was crucified and where believers' life is, is reduced to always looking back. Christ says, no, that's not the Christian life. He expands on this topic of joy and He teaches them and He teaches us that the Christian's joy is not just in the past, but it's fulfilled in the present, in our very lives, through the avenue of prayer. Through the avenue of prayer, Christ points us to the future and tells us there is greater joy ahead, a joy that is full and complete, a joy that is to be experienced personally by way of prayer, specifically the joy of answered prayer. That is what Christ is talking about. Not just the act of prayer, but He completes it, He concludes it, that there is a promise of God Himself, God the Father, answering our prayers. So believers will have three simple points this morning. Complete joy because of answered prayer. Complete joy because of answered prayer. Complete joy because of the basis of our answered prayer. And complete joy of knowing the motivation behind answered prayer. We'll go through these one by one. This is one of the reasons why Christianity is not a religion. It is not. We don't, you know, these people and who believe that, uh, or Muslims believe in the Islamic faith, they worship their Quran. I mean, that's literally the body of Christ as it's to us in a sense. It is to them. And for them, it is all about words, all about cold truths or cold ideas and philosophies. Christianity is far from that. It is not just mere doctrine. It is not mere theology. It is doctrine that is alive. It is a theology that is vibrant. It is, in common terminology, it is a relationship, a dynamic and living relationship that we have with God the Father and Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. If we were to expand upon that analogy of a mom giving birth to, his, to, a, to her child, you know, no good parent would say, wow, when I had my baby, you know, it was great. Such, such a time of joy and satisfaction. 
And no good mom would say, it was downhill from there, right? It just, that was the height, and now we're at the valley. And, you know, that's all I want to think about, that birth. And I have no relationship with my son or daughter now. No good parent would say that. Good parent would say, good mom would say, wow, that day was full of joy. But you know what? As I raise this child, feed her, care for her, clean her diaper, right? As I labor over her, as I see her grow, as I hear her say, you know, daddy and mommy, right? As I see her grow in, in every way and have a relationship with her, joy is continual. In fact, the joy that I have now with my child is greater and, and in a sense fuller than the initial joy of birth. Well, that is what Christ is saying. Right? We're not to just look back in this cold religion and look back on the cross and what happened 2,000 years ago and say, well, that was the height and it's downhill from there. No, because we have a dynamic relationship with the living Lord. That's the beginning. That's when our eternal life began. And our joy in Christ is fuller now, day by day, as He lives, as we live with Him. Well, first point is that believers will have complete joy because of answered prayer. Verse 23, In that day you will ask nothing of me. I say to you truly, truly, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give it to you. Before we unpack this verse, we have to um, really narrow down a key prerequisite here, a key uh, phrase, and narrow down what is Christ alluding to in that day. What is that day referring to? Is he referring to uh, his second coming? Is he referring to um, the 1,000 year earthly kingdom, his reign on the, on the earth? Is he referring to heaven? Um, when does that day refer to? By the context of this passage, it has to refer to the time when Christ has departed and he has sent the Holy Spirit, the age of the Holy Spirit. We will not ask him why. He won't be here. Right? right now, disciples are asking him all these questions. Right now, disciples are asking him all these things. Uh, questions, not only questions, but requests for needs. You know, John 6, Lord, we're hungry. Lord, they're hungry. Lord, we're all in need. Lord, there's a storm. We're sinking. Why are you sleeping? Help us. They're constantly asking the Lord of these things. Explain this parable to us. Reveal God to us. Teach us about the kingdom of God. Christ is in that day, you will ask you will, nothing of me because I won't be around. I'll be ascended into heaven. And the Holy Spirit will be here. At that time, you will not ask of me, but truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give it to you. Verse 23. Look at that. Whatever you ask of the Father, in my name, He will give it to you. God the Father will give to us. What a glorious promise. What power and authority that Christians possess. That we have direct access to God the Father, and He inclines His ears to our cries. And that when we call upon His name, in the name of Jesus Christ, He will answer us and grant to us whatever we ask. He has repeated this throughout the Upper Room Discourse, John fourteen thirteen. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That is the reason why the Father would do it. 
Because as Christians, when we have our prayers answered, who is glorified? God the Son. And so the Father's motivation is, I will do this. Not for your glory. Not because you are my God. Not because I am your servant. Not because I'm not a genie in a bottle. Uh, 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 catering to every whim of a Christian. No, I will answer your request. If you ask in the name of Christ, because when I do that, before the world and before the church, my son is honored. My son is glorified. John fifteen sixteen, Christ said, You did not choose me, but I chose you, appointed you to bear fruit, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. Telling us that God's will is for us to bear fruit. And we ask the Father, Father, help me to bear fruit. Help me to be a more loving person. Lord, grant me greater joy. Lord, my heart is filled with anxiety and worry. Lord, grant me peace. Lord, help me to be meek, gentle, mild, kind. Help me to grow in discipline and self-control. That is the Father's will and Christ promised if we ask to grow spiritual fruit, He will answer us. In 1 John 5, 14-15, Apostle John said, this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He will hear us. We know that He hears us. And whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. That's amazing. That when we call upon God, He hears us as, as sons. Therefore, no need for eloquent speech no need for any kind of uh, like priests of Baal, like dancing and cutting up, you know, cutting themselves, and all this kind of you know pomp and circumstance to get God's attention. And Elijah says, "Where is your God? Where is Baal? Is he on a trip? Maybe he's sleeping. You need to like talk louder and knock on that door because you know he's, he sleeps pretty you know soundly, or you know he euphemistically says taking care of business. You know what Elijah's saying." He's in the bathroom, right? That's, that's, he's taunting them. You know, maybe he's in the you know, bathroom and can't hear you. Go knock on that door and try to get him out. That is not what we need to do to get our Father's attention. All we need to do is ask, right? In the name of Jesus, according to His will. And whatever we ask, whatever we ask, He will answer us. And we will receive it so that His Son will be glorified. And that He Himself will be glorified. What is the result of that? It's amazing. The result is not just the glory of Christ the Son, but the result is our joy. The result of answered prayer is your joy, my joy. Verse 24, second part. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. He's, he's pleading to us, will you pray? Would you please pray and ask God according to His will and His name, in my name, would you please do that? So that you don't stay limited to the joy of Calvary, but that your joy will be progressive, your joy will grow, and your joy will be completed. God desires this so that our joy may be full. And that is our experience, right? That when we pray and God answers, 
There's joy in our hearts. And we pray for the salvation of the lost. There are many of you who are Christians today because of prayers of the saints. And when you became Christians, many believers rejoiced. It was affirmation of God hearing our prayers. Many of you have prayed for our church, prayed for our ministries, you know, past mission trips, last church VBS, many of you prayed. And when we heard the great reports of missionaries coming back, of outreach here, of VBS, we rejoiced together. Christ desires us to pray for our own good because prayer life results in our joy. But some of you, because you don't pray, when people come back from missions, your heart is not stirred. When someone comes to Christ because you didn't labor in prayer for their souls, there is no joy. In fact, your life is marred by a lack of joy. There is a clear, undergirding theme of of sadness, of discontentment, of grumbling and complaining in your life. Your life is marked by an absence of joy, and it can only mean one thing, is that you're not praying. You're not praying to the Father in His name according to His will. And that is why there is no joy. That is why there is no joy over God's answered prayer in the midst of the community of believers. As people come to Christ, as people are growing, people are going off to missions, people are serving, people are overcoming sin, you are by yourself, and you are wallowing in self-pity, complaining and grumbling, and discontentment, All because you are not praying. This joy is not communal. This joy is individual. And if you are not praying, but the body is praying, the body will be rejoicing. Your brother in Christ, sister in Christ will be full of satisfaction and fulfillment. But you alone will be lacking joy because you are not in prayer. Just consider David's um, experience of answered prayer. I mean, David was a man after God's own heart. That means he was a man of prayer. And so he abundantly experienced the joy of receiving answers from God. Psalm 4.1 Answer me when I call, O God, my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Psalm 5.11 Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exult in you. Psalm 16.11 You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Psalm 27.1-6 the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail against me, when adversaries and foes, it is they, to, they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked the Lord, this is what I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire Him in His temple, and He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the, the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And verse 6, listen to this. And then my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. 
and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. Why? Because his enemies have surrounded him. His desire is only for God. When he called upon God, God answered him specifically. Therefore, he will call out with shouts of joy in the presence of Yahweh. So much so, David says later on in Psalm 27, Though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take me in. He says the joy of God the Father is greater than the joy of family. Rejection from my family, rejection from my community, is nothing compared to the joy that I have in my relationship with the living God through prayer and through Him answering my prayer. Apostle Paul said the same thing. said it very simply, very matter-of-factly in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, and 17. All of us here know, that, know these verses. Rejoice always. How? Pray without ceasing. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. There is a uh, symbiotic relationship between prayer and joy. Life without prayer is life without joy. A person's life bathed in prayer. His life is filled, overflowing with joy. Pastor named S.G. DeGrave said this, for those who have hidden fellowship with God through prayer, life is a continuous feast. Those who have hidden fellowship with God through prayer, life is a continuous feast. And you can see this in believers. There are believers who are just happy. They're just happy like, you know, they had a good meal. They're not happy like, you know, the Spurs won or something. Who cares, right? They have this, this joy. They have this... Um, contentment. It's not false. It's not fake. It's not an act. It is genuine to the core. And it's because it really is because you'll find them privately in prayer. There's some believers, they're just sad. They're just, they're just you just talk to them and like the discontentment comes out, you know, grumbling. They're just, the life is not complete. And, and even though they have everything, I mean, they have food, they have clothes, they have shelter, they have a car for goodness sakes. Like, what more do they want? And yet, they're not happy. They have everything the world, you know, billions of people will want, and yet they're sad. And the reason is, as Christians, you cannot be happy if you're not communing with God. They are lacking prayer. George Herbert said, prayer for the Christian is a soul's blood. It is our lifeblood. Well, the first reason that believers will have joy is because of answered prayer. Second reason that they will have complete joy is the basis of our answered prayer. Verse 24, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy may be full. Believers post-Pentecost will do something that no one has ever done in the history of the world. Ever since Adam, no one's, no one's ever done this. John 16, 24. Everyone has prayed on their own name and had to appeal to the mercy of God. And you had no idea if God will answer or not because of our inadequacy, because of our inherent sinfulness, because of our hypocrisy. 
So every man, every godly man who went throughout Scripture, the best they could do is plead to God upon His mercy and grace and pray and, and, and ask and petition and that was it. But Christ said, on that day when the Holy Spirit is sent in Acts 2, it will be different. It will be changed for all believers subsequent to on that time, from that time on. From that moment on, we will ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Ask and you'll receive. That is awesome, isn't it? I mean, think about it. If you had to go to God and pray in your own name, I mean, if you had a half a heart, half a conscience, if you had any kind of long-term memory, you know, still working in your minds, in my mind, how could we, with a straight face, go to God and ask Him anything? We couldn't, right? I mean, we would... At the very, the very least, we'd be like the uh, public in Luke 18, be in the back of the row, beat our chest, and say, forgive me. I can't ask for anything. I can't ask for that you would answer my prayer to grow, or for my family, or for my friends, or for the church. I've got to pray for myself. And I can't ask that. I just got to plead, forgive me, for I'm a sinner. That's the best, that's the only thing I can do. But Christ said, now, because of my atonement, because of my death, you can ask in my name. In the name of Jesus Christ. Right. Isn't that awesome? Because I am perfect, I'm holy, I live a perfect life, I died a vicarious death. You can go to the Father with boldness and confidence, and you can ask in the name of Jesus Christ, and He will answer you. Right. God will say, why should I answer you? Jesus Christ. Right. I'm wearing His righteous garments. You see me, and you see Christ. It's no longer I will live, but Christ who lives in me. Therefore, that is our joy. If we had to go on our own righteousness, there would be no joy. But because the basis of our prayer is Christ, we can have joy. And finally, and this is arguably the best one, we, they will have and we have complete joy of knowing the motivation behind answered prayer. The motivation behind answered prayer. In that day, you are asking my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. So what is happening here is explaining what is happening behind closed doors. We pray in Christ's name, but Christ is saying, tells us, but what's happening is I am not going on your behalf to the Father to ask for you. I am not your intermediary. No. When you ask the Father in my name, what is happening is, verse 27, the Father Himself will answer your prayers. The Father Himself will attend to you. My Father Himself will give to you. Why? Because He Himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed me that I have come from God. What a precious point that, will, that greatly encourages us to pray. Some think that uh, Christ's atonement, Christ's death was necessary to help God love us. That's far from the truth. That's the opposite. Christ died for us because the Father loved us. The Father's love for us came first. That is why Christ came. God answers our prayers not because of His Son only, but because He loves us. Because He cares for us. And because we love the Son, Jesus Christ, and believe in Him. 
our Lord does not need to coerce His Father. He does not have to manipulate Him or wring His arm or plead or beg. Oh, come on! You know, it's not that bad. Right? You know, he was pretty good two weeks ago. Right? Come on, Lord, Father, this, this, this one time, do me a favor and will you answer His prayer? Father's like, all right, Jesus. That guy, I know. Right? He's going to turn on me again, but because of you, because I love you, I'll love, you know, answer him. That's not what's happening. As soon as we call upon him, he answers. Right? He's able to, because of the righteousness of Christ, atonement of Christ, he's able to and answer us. Why? What's the motivation? Because the Father himself loves you. He loves you. He wants to answer your prayers. You're coming to him, I'm coming to him as a son, as a daughter, as a child. And the motivation behind his answers is his love for us. And why does He love us? Because and He loves His Son. And He loves everyone who loves His Son. Right? He believes in His Son. He, he, so therefore, He loves everyone who believes in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, does that make sense, right? I, mean, I don't have an illustration here, but you have someone whom you love. You love Him so much. Everyone that loves Him, you love Him as well. Right? There's that commonality, right? You know, like, Bad illustration, but you guys enjoy the same like music musician. Right? Oh, you like him too? I like him too. And all of a sudden you're friends. Right? He's your favorite player? He's my favorite player. Alright, we're best friends from now on. Right? right? You love that dish at that restaurant? That's my favorite dish. Right? What's the Bad illustration, but you know what I'm saying. Right? God loves the Son, and because we love the Son, because we believe the Son, Father loves us. You know, I can go on and on about this marvelous mystery, but I don't know if this is so much of a theme for preaching as a theme that you and I ought to meditate on in our prayer closet this week. You know, we ought to just go and uh, be by ourselves and open John 16 and look at this verse and be reminded of our Father's love for us and that He wants to answer our prayers because uh, He wants us to have full joy, complete joy. And He wants us to know experientially His love through answered prayer. And He wants us to know He's answering our prayers because He loves us. Well, one final application. I just have one application for all of us. And that is to pray. That is for all of us to pray. That we must pray to pray day in the morning and noon and night, pray driving in our cars, praying at work, praying with our wives, praying with our children, praying with fellow believers, praying with strangers every opportunity we ought to pray because the joy of the Lord is strength. And if the joy of, of the Christian life is gone from you, what can reignite it? In a, in a way, it is not so much word, but it's prayer. It's like salvation begins in response to the Word, but begins with prayer. Likewise, um, the recognition of passion and love for Christ begins not so much with Word, but begins with prayer. It begins with calling out to God and saying, God, I, I really don't love you right now. I've stopped loving you. I've stopped obeying you. My heart is cold. My heart is callous. 
my mind is filled with distractions and, and, and mundane earthly things. I really have no desire or unction or earnestness to seek after you. And I read the word and, I, and, and nothing is attractive to me. Oh God, would you show me grace? In the name of Christ, would you change my heart? Would you renew my mind? Would you help me and give me passion? And the Father says, I will answer you, you will receive it, and you will have joy that belongs to those of a relationship with the living God. Would you pray? Would you resolve? Would you make that decision to be a man or woman of prayer? Oh, that we will not tack on prayer as a litany of Christian disciplines. We will not consider a prayer life as an option as an extracurricular activity. Oh, that we would stop making excuses for lack of prayer. Oh, that we would prioritize prayer so that we would experience God's love firsthand and have joy and experience peace. Oh, Holy Father, I come to you as, as a hypocrite where I know the weakness and the shallowness and coldness of my prayers. I come before you, O God, and ask you before I can call others to pray or how, how much I need to pray, how much my heart needs to be stirred passionately love you, cherish you, and to seek you and to depend upon you through prayer. Oh God, that you would show me and show all of us grace and mercy that we do not deserve. And Lord, that we would begin today. We will forget what is behind and we will strain towards what is ahead. We will not allow the past to stretch forth its arms to encumber us. We would, um, we would leave it behind and we will pursue Christ this day and pursue you so that our, our lives will be testimonies of your glory and of your love by our just utter joy and satisfaction in you because you are faithful to answer our requests, our petitions. Oh God, we are uh, humbled that you would love us so, that you desire that we would cast our burdens upon you because you care for us, that you know our innermost needs, our struggles, our heartaches, all of our needs, Lord. And because you love us, you answer our cry. You do not respond out of obligation, out of burden but out of love. Oh Lord, we praise your name. We, uh, we raise your name on high because of your love for undeserving sinners as us. We thank you for um, the privilege, the position, the power we have to pray to you. In Jesus' name, Amen.